Hello and welcome to the Cool Tribe Podcast. This podcast is powered by Cloud Forest. Cloud Forest is a climate action company whose mission is to create 100 forests for the planet along Ireland's Wild Atlantic Way. This week, we chatted with John Matthews and Bridie Corrigan Matthews, the incredible couple behind Kildevan House. Kildevan House is a fully restored Georgian-style mansion on 88 acres in County Westmeath. This house is a place that is steeped in history and was once home to Meredith Mary Johnson, who played rugby for Ireland between 1877 and 1884 and captained the team to its first international rugby win. Meredith's wife, Edith Mary Jane Wise was a first cousin of William B. Yeats, the famous poet. John and Bridie purchased the house over 20 years ago when it was in considerable state of disrepair. However, over the last two decades, they have worked tirelessly to restore the historic house with great sensitivity and attention to detail, which has ensured the integrity of the house. So without further ado, let's get straight into it. Hello and welcome to the Cool Tribe podcast. My name is Alan O'Donovan and I'm your host. I'm here with uh, Bernard Pender. Good morning. And I'm here with Bridie. Good morning. And John. Good morning. So I suppose we'll just get straight into it. And uh, if you don't mind, we'll start with you, Bridie. So if you just want to give us a quick background on yourself, your professional career, you know, give us your story. Okay. Um, well, I'm the eldest of seven, and my parents come from Granard in County Longford, so very much a farming family. Um, went to school in Dublin, Malahide, and then finally emigrated to New Zealand when I was 23. And I worked there for a period of 15 years in a law firm. And met John over there, and used to bring him back home every year. And um, then finally, in 2000, we made the decision... Uh, amongst other things, also aligned with buying our house there, uh, to come back to Ireland. And following that, I was working in the financial services for about three and a half years. And then in 2006, I decided to set up my own business, which is all about uh, training and upskilling in the food, beverage, seafood, agri-food sector. Mm. So I've been um, self-employed. Uh, since 2006, and I now have seven staff working for me. What What's the name of that business, Bridie? It's called Taste for Success. Okay. So very much focused on food science. So, you know, food is science. That, that has been sort of my mantra. And about understanding, you know, where the food comes from, how it's grown from fork to plate. Um, and in, in particular, you know, trying to develop the skills of those that work right across the whole spectrum of the food sector, from restaurants, hotels, uh, food service outlets, like you'll see the local super values, the centres, um, in all the local towns, in isolated areas of Ireland and in isolated regions. So part of what we do is get the training and the upskilling and the experts out to those areas so that people can stay at home or live in their community um, and or have the skills to move into maybe some of the larger um, multinationals or the large indigenous Irish businesses. I think yeah, I think I know a little bit about your business, having met you out at Kildeven House. And I think it's... Uh, you know, what, what you're doing in that space, and I, I know talking to one of our cool partners, um, Donald from Enzo, um, I know there's a sustainability slant on your training as well, and there's a climate action slant. And I on, on a couple of our previous podcasts, we had guests in, and we talked about food miles, and we talked about 
people not shopping local and is that is that a is that part of your remit in the training or is it in terms of the, the sustainability and getting local ingredients or yes absolutely it is so so um in particular i suppose just picking up on on the work that we're, we're doing and hoping to absolutely grow with enzo uh, which stands for environment social sustainability we're very much focusing on smes uh, and artisan producers to help them to put in place an environmental social sustainability plan so apart from being able to measure their inputs their outputs their waste their carbon um, it's also about managing their business better as well um, and that will enable them to grow to understand where their products are coming from how to manage those and 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 also i think you know to keep and to support the fabric of our food and drink sector in Ireland, which is a very, very, it's our largest indigenous sector in, in, in our country. And it employs in excess of 250,000 people. And, um, you know, it's a very important part of our social fabric. Okay. And moving on to John, we're going to get your sort of career path. You're a New Zealander, John. Well, I was born in born in England, actually, in Norwich, and uh, emigrated with my parents to New Zealand at the age of 14. But I consider myself a New Zealander. I've spent about 33 years of my life there, and uh, I, I'm totally 100% New Zealander from that experience. <laughs> okay. And your career, your career when you moved to New Zealand, when you... What's well, your, what was your career to date? I, I was basically involved in, in sales. I uh, uh, was a marketing manager for, for uh, the first ever cable TV company that went to New Zealand. And we, we, we were, uh, introduced fiber optic cable to New Zealand at that well, stage. And that was probably nearly 30 years ago. Okay. So, uh, and you met Bridie? I met Bridie, uh, life changed considerably <laughs> from that point, and uh, it's been downhill ever since, actually. But, uh, he met me on the bowling green. Did he? I did. Playing bowls, yeah. If, if ever I was going to stand out, it was uh, a 38-year-old 38, 38 amongst 70-year-old men, you know, so, uh, so that was my best chance. <laughs> I'll take notes over here, I'll take notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you then bought a, a home, you came home to Ireland in the early 2000s. We came back for Bridie's brother's, brother's wedding and uh, I was actually with a friend of the family whose land just happened to be next door to Kildeven. We were walking the land and I said, God, that's a magnificent house. And he said, well, it's empty. And he says, as a matter of fact, I can get the key if you want to have a look. So I said, yeah, I'd actually love to do that. So, um, so that was arranged. But Bridie was doing her final exam for her degree in granite, kind of live with the New Zealand timing with the New Zealand exam taking place over there. And she was so involved with that that she wasn't really interested. But so we actually had a look literally the day before we left to go back to New Zealand. And, uh, and I can remember showing Bridie the place and she said, if I get any bad feelings, we're not, we're not going to buy this, right? But she didn't get any bad feelings, and uh, and uh, you know, uh, so you know, cut a long story short, we ended up buying the place. It took about two years to do that with the kind of negotiations we had to buy it from New Zealand as opposed to being over here. So it was a slow process. 
but uh, we, we, by 1999, we'd taken possession and it's all sort of started from there. Okay, and Bridie, talk to me about uh, Kil- Kildeven House. I'm pronouncing that right. Yes, I know we've absolutely, talked. Yeah. Kildeven House, uh, I visited the house and it's incredible, but it's incredible now. Yeah. Talk to me what condition it was in when you actually purchased it. And it came with 60 acres of land or 70 acres of land? 88. 88 acres of land. Okay. And... I know we, we now have a native woodland on that site, and we'll talk about that in a, in a few minutes, but it was just bare land. Yeah, it was bare land. The house was uh, very much in disrepair, um, and that's why I think I said to John, because it was so grey and and dark-looking. It hadn't been lived in. You could see that. You could sense that. You could feel it. The, the It was just like a, a, you know, a car track up to the front door. The grass was overgrown. Um, the outbuildings... All of the roofs had caved in, and there's two 50-metre runs of outbuildings. So the house, we can track back to 1659, to the census in 1659. Those outhouses were our original from that date. Um, they're cut stone as opposed to stone. So the difference between that, as we've learned over the years, is that cut stone has been chiselled around the edges with what they call a picture frame edging. Uh, They were lined inside with mortar, so that indicated that people had lived in them, as well as, you know, accommodating animals and, I suppose, foodstuffs, hay, and all the rest of it. Uh, People had lived in in those outhouses because there's chimneys and chimney breasts in them. Um, the main house, as it stands today, was built in 1833, but there had been another house prior to that, but we have no pictures or there's no sort of records of it other than we know that people were living uh, there on the 1659 census. So effectively, you bought a house that needed to be brought back to its former glory. Would that be a, a fair yeah, assessment? Of it? Yeah. That's probably too uh, a light an assessment. I'd say it would- Bought a house that had to be saved. I think it, another ten years, it might have been beyond it, beyond saving. And I know after being in the house, it's 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 a very unusual architectural design. I think you pointed out it's got this dual aspect. Um, is it turrets or is have I described that right? Where you bow tower? It's got yeah, a bow tower. Back but it's got a front, front and back yeah. on it. So architecturally, it's very unique. unique. And, and I know in down famous owners. That may have owned, owned the house, besides yourselves. Yeah, oh, I don't know about that. Yes, so, well, one of the famous owners, um, uh, obviously the guy that designed and developed it, his name is um, Robert Spruill, and his name is over the door carved in, the, in, in a beautiful piece of limestone with the 1833 was when it was completed. And he was both an architect, he studied at Trinity College in Dublin, and he was also a magistrate, and he studied at King's Inn, um, on Constitution Hill in Dublin. Wow. So he actually had a, you know, ran his um, uh, his business, so to speak. So in the in the bottom, in the basement of the building, in against the bank on which the front steps are situated, there was a jail or a goal, and he would have prisoners uh, for whatever little misdemeanors that they committed, um, brought there, held captive until he. Um, heard their stories and pronounced a sentence or otherwise on them. Wow. That, isn't, that in, isn't that incredible? You still have and, a few chains. And to, think, and to think that house may have been lost. And I, I, I know when I went down to, to visit you guys, I was absolutely blown away with the restoration work 
that you've undertaken there and how do you where do you start uh, with a project like that you go backwards actually that's <laughs> what you do you because uh, in, in our case we had to knock two floors out okay so um, it's uh, the house basically is a basement and three levels on top and the, so the two top floors were taken out and because they were completely rotten that there'd been water coming in the house the house was derelict for 30 years from 1960 and uh, and so the lead was pinched off the roof the fireplaces the main fireplaces were taken and uh, and water had got in and so there was a lot of rot that had to be taken out first so what you do first is you go backwards quite considerably so you strip it back right the back to its core and then you well you, you have a blank canvas then to there's no point making good if the underneath isn't good. So we, you have to take out what has to come out. Uh, it's, it's all done under a conservation architect, and uh, they they they're, they're very conscious and insistent that you keep as much of the original house as you can. So you may put support posts along original decayed posts and that sort of thing. Okay. Just, just for the just for the architectural. Yeah. I think too in the, in, in the in the main roof area there are kitten post trusses, and so partly rotten. Other parts are really good. So what we did was with the you know uh, advice of the conservation architect because we we got the house listed in order to protect it forever. Um, uh, they you know we have a combination of support steel around those trusses to ensure that we maintained as much of the integrity of the house. Um, because the the architecture in it, having been hand done, is is quite spectacular. No, it is it is it is stunning. And any ghost stories? Um, You've had a jail there. Yes. Any strange noises? Well, any bumps in the bats. night? We had bats in the house when, when we got it, and uh, we personally don't haven't experienced any any paranormal. Ghosts. But uh, and neither have our two cats, <laughs> uh, which, is, which to me would be a telltale sign. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, th th we have friends that, that say that they can feel a, a bustle of activity at the bottom of the, the, the main stairs to the basement. Mm. Okay, uh, so, so it's more than one person that's sort of had that sense. Okay, but, uh, you know, Bridie's quite happy to stay in on her own. She's probably braver than I, <laughs> regard and. Um, I, I always I always think it's amazing when you have a house that's probably 250, 300 years old or, you know, certainly the house was in the 1800s and to think of the amount of people that would have stayed there, the amount of people that would have had celebrated birthdays and, and you guys came along and saved it. Otherwise, it probably wouldn't be there anymore. But I, I think, I think it's, I think when I, when I, when I first went to the site and you said to me, you ended something even crazier if if we were to look you planted a, a native woodland on 60 acres of the site and when i say crazy it's like yeah. what mages do that because i just think that's totally inspiring well, well it was probably um the, f f the fact that i've i've always had an interest in in birds um, you know bird watching and that sort of thing from the time i was in england i was a member of the rspb royal society for protection of birds from the age of seven uh, until I left England and um, and that, that interest for the birds over here has always stayed with me and 
prior to coming back, I, I soon realised that mm. they was they were talking about about the birds of Britain on the radio one day, and uh, and um, they were saying that with, by two thousand and thirty, the the bird population in Britain is actually going to be decimated. And why is that? It's because their habitat is being reduced with the push for extra land for farming and insecticides are taking away all the insects which of course is one of the things that birds feed on apart from berries and that sort of thing so the birds were being hit from all angles and I knew that Ireland was only 8% forested at the time Mm. as as opposed to the rest of Europe which was on average was 24% so I knew it was under forest and I thought we have an opportunity here to do something and uh, so we, r- rather than everybody was telling us to plant softwoods, we knew softwoods were great commercially because in New Zealand they've been doing that s- since the 1930s and I, and I think that, they, that you know, they sort of reach maturity within 30 years, whereas opposed yep. deciduous trees, it takes 100 years to reach uh, maturity. And I think, I think when, to, to rewind to my comments about being crazy, um, it's crazy in an absolutely brilliant good way because... For somebody to make a commitment to the environment as opposed to, like you say, doing the softwoods and that's the easy, that's what I always call the easy book. You plant the softwoods, you get a 30-year rotation on it and you, 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 you make money. You, you do, you're doing it for monetary purposes. And I know after visiting the site, you've done this amazing trail and hopefully we'll release a video on that in the coming weeks of the trail that you've made through this native woodland. That's How old is the native woodland now? It's 21 years. It's planned. 21 years old. 2001 we planned. Going to have a party. 2001. It's 21. It's an adult. Officially, it's, an adult. it's, a, it's, it's officially an adult. An adult. <laughs> um, and, and how many acres of, of the forest, of, of the land did you plant? 60 acres. 60 acres. So 60 out of your 88 acres were planted under a native woodland establishment. Yeah, the two fields at the front were left as pasture and we planted all the land behind the house. So the 60 acres behind the house, yeah. yeah. And and when you, I know you had a mix, it's done like a mixed native woodland because when we walked through it, you'd ash, um, you'd oak. Any other species there? Any other? Sycamore. Sycamore. Beach, it's 13 and a half acres of beach. It's mainly, uh, almost half is, is in oak. Yeah. 50-50 mix of red oak and oak. Yeah. And uh, there's... Uh, so the ash is, uh, is there. We we do have some Sitka spruce, eight acres of Sitka yeah. spruce, and that's very interesting because the, when you look at di- biodiversity, the uh, the the that that area of woodland, there is nothing coming through on the ground in the softwoods. Mm. Nothing coming through. You saw that yourself. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, when you go to the deciduous part, you've got everything coming through. There's, there's, there's ferns, there's, yeah, I mean, bra- obviously brambles as well, but all those things that, that both birds and insects and the native species need. Flourishing. Yeah. And I, I think you've done something very unique because you, you cut a trail uh, through this and you probably spent the last five, ten years maybe developing the trail. And it took me probably two minutes to cop on how the trail was sort of working and it's a little bit like if I was to describe it like an Olympic skier coming down the side of a mountain you've got the slaloms that you go through Mm. so you're looking for the next set of slaloms and 
it is it's amazing that you're able to get into the heart of the woodland and especially when i went and visited you have, you have trees that are over 100 years old down the far end of the the woodland that have bats living in talk to me those those it's always brilliant when a far a forestry company comes in and leaves existing trees in place and builds a woodland or when i say creates a woodland around it those trees are are they they're over 100 years old they're 200 actually 200 yeah, years yeah, old beech trees and they, they, originally they went right down the the, the entrance way but uh, in about 1980s a lot of them were removed but I'm not sure it's a good thing because I was showing my grandson the other day and I was telling him that these trees are 200 years old. And he said to me, did I plant them? <laughs> I, I fear you walked into that one. He could, have a, he could have a job as a comedian, huh? The, the grandson. So he's 20. So that's the native woodland. Bridie, talk to me about your feelings on the native woodland. When did Was this a joint decision or was it, like yes. I know John has said about the, the, his love of, of the birds and the avian. A species, and I certainly know on our cloud forest one site when we bought it, it was devoid of life. There was no birds. It was a cattle farm, and to see it now, we've birds. If you look at the live stream early in the morning, especially around this time of the year, there's birds constantly flying. It, that, war, that warms my heart. That's it's magnificent. Me too. Me too. It's yeah. a wonderful sound. Yeah. So, so talk to me about your <laughs> your your decision making that this is what you are going to do. Well, I suppose when John showed me the house initially, uh, he heard that little story, um, I suppose I was so excited that he was even considering coming back to live in Ireland. We had spoken about it, but it is hard to uproot and leave a country where there is more sunshine, warmer, warmer hours, slightly warmer climate, not too dissimilar to Ireland, but certainly you know, those, those things are, are, are um, I suppose, the difference. But... Uh, but neither of us are farmers as such, you know, we're not, you know, we haven't been brought up, although my family, my brothers are farmers, my mum and dad are farmers, I wasn't brought up farming, so, and, and neither was John, but, you know, there's so much you can do with the land, and, and when he, you know, when John said to me, look, I'd love to plant a forest, I really, really would love to do that, um, and as, you know, we knew that we would have to keep working ourselves, that we couldn't live off the land, uh, but that we would have to keep working. So we, you know, and it was an opportunity for me to come back home. It was a project for John. It was something that would make him happy and, and give him, you know, an opportunity to engage in his passion. I think that was, for me... A big motivator. A big motivator. Well, you was. have made a massive sacrifice to undertake a house, first of all, a conservation project. And because I know, I know from my time working in the construction industry uh, as part of my security uh, career, that houses that are old like that, there is, you 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 do one thing and you then realise, well, we were allowing a budget of a thousand euro for this, money, now it's 20,000. Right 20, yeah, yeah. It's like the money piss, <laughs> yeah. nearly. So you restored the house and then you decided to to do a, na a native woodland. Um, that, that takes... That takes serious guts. guts, yeah. <laughs> well, I think the woodland was actually planted before we really started the work on the house. Okay. And the first area, you know, as John said, things had to come down first, but the first things we replaced, rather than having a lovely new kitchen, 
which all women want. We had a new roof and I waited uh, for 20 years to get a new kitchen. So it's all about, you know, that's a major that that I'm not even messing. That's a major sacrifice because I, I like a kitchen is it when you're getting a new house and it's yeah. it's a major part of the home. Like it's it is, but you know to do it right, it does yeah. cost a bit of money, yeah. and that yeah, is the course. equivalent. It was always right. If we do this, it means we can mm. do, that. do that. It was okay. a question of priorities. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. That was uh, Bridie's highest priority and one of my lowest. Of course. <laughs> and uh, Com- uh, compromise is key. We, yeah. Well, we had we actually. Uh, I mean, seriously, like yeah. we, we actually had to save the house, and the mm. first thing you've got to do to save the house is is re-roof it. Yeah. And we had to re- re-roof the main house and all the outhouses. Mm. So that was done first. So that, you know, there's a fair bit of time and effort. And when we walked through um, the native woodland, <coughs> when I came down to visit you guys, um, there was you found some prehistoric items or st- um, items from the Stone Age? Or yeah, well, I was, I was going to say that. I mean, you know, planting a forest is probably the best thing I've ever done in my life. I feel so good. Bar, bar Murray and Brady. Oh, yeah, yeah, thanks. <laughs> thanks, thanks for that. <laughs> and you're on my side. Yeah, yeah. No, but uh, that it, it really, I mean, it, it was so good. I feel so good about doing that. And, and I, I used to walk around when it was first planted just to see if a leaf had grown somewhere, you know, and... Um, and one day I saw this sort of pointed stone sticking out of one of the small piles that the seedlings were planted into and I took it back to the kitchen because it was caked in mud and um, washed it in the kitchen sink and I said to Bridie, I, th- I think I found a, a Stone Age ad's head and, and, and Bridie said, what's that? You know, she didn't know what an ad's head was yeah. and... Uh, and um, anyway, it, it, I mean, it was just a beautiful thing. It was about about eight inches long. It went tapered off to a point at one end, and the sharp end, and it was a sharp end because it was ground to a sort of knife edge on a curve. It was just a beautiful thing, and um, and it was clearly a, a, a tool. Yeah. And uh, I mean, the, the thrill of pulling something out of the ground that was last held by somebody 6,000 years ago, 4,000 years before Jesus. It's incredible. Like, it's just, like, it's, that's better than winning the yeah, lotto as yeah. far as I'm concerned. It's and, just a proof. And I think in, in your own home nearly, it's, it's a whole, it adds another layer to it. Like, and I also, I know you said there, it's, it's I, I kind of want to see how has it improved like your life. So waking up in the morning and going out and just walking amongst the trees it's it must be well, we, incredible we, we we're privileged and we were very conscious of that mm. dur- during the lockdown where mm. you know most people we were very sorry for the people living in apartments in dublin for instance because bridey could basically sort of do a, a, a 5k walk around around the forest and the and the land without leaving the property yeah so like you know, we were privileged. I mean, you couldn't drive two two kilometers mm. up the road at one stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Had all this to, so on your doorstep. So we were very lucky. Yeah. I suppose, you know, looking back on it, you know, looking at us now, people will say, "Oh, aren't they lucky?" or Whatever. But we did have to make, as you said, some um, very tricky decisions, mm. and 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 to agree to do without things that it would have to go. So instead of having the nice flash. Four or five bedroom house in 
Malahide, where I went to school and grew up, or whatever, we ended up on 88 acres with a house that was falling down. So many friends came to stay, so many family came to stay, and thought we were nuts. And I mean, genuinely thought we were nuts. Um, and the difference see. was we knew we were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and didn't see the vision, or, 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 or didn't see the vision. And we knew it was going to be a we knew it was going to be a long time. We thought maybe ten years, but then we had the crash in two thousand and eight, two thousand nine. Some of the money that we didn't put into investing in the company or into sorry into the house um, got lost with uh, you know a contractor going down and stuff. So we had to start from scratch again. But it has it has been a tremendous privilege to live there. And to be able to smell Mm. the fresh air, to go out in the garden, plant a few roses, which I love doing. I just absolutely love roses. So I've got a lot of rose bushes in different places. And um, and that's where we've put our efforts. I think I think uh, I loved what you're just after saying there about having a vision, because everything, you know, I always felt that even in cloud forests that when I told people initially about my my cloud forest vision. Yeah. They thought I was crazy, and I think, I think it's always great to know to know you're crazy and go, yeah, I am crazy, <laughs> but I'm going to do this. And it, it's very interesting. I met um, a, a, a colleague, an accountant friend of mine, at the weekend, and I had originally given him my vision board for cloud forests, and we had a chat, and it's three years on, and he says, "Well, how's cloud forest doing? What, have, did you get that going?" Because um, he sort of would follow what we're doing on. Sorry, I think it was a cheeky question. And to see everything that I laid out as a vision to where we are now and to where we're going to go. When you have talked about a vision you had for, the, for, for your home, there's people, there's people that don't see, can't see the vision, in other words. But you saw a vision of a house that you've now restored. You saw a vision of a native woodland. You've got your birds in the native woodland. So you built it and the birds came and you, you, you've, you've given so much back. And then there was something else when I went down there that I was so amazed with, which was your beekeeping. And it's something that we're very passionate with. We've a, we've a, a partnership with the Irish Native Honeybee Society. And we've got our first hives on Cloud Forest One. And when I went and I saw, how many bees have you got now on the site, John? I've got five hives, so I'm just a hobbyist beekeeper. But He's I, just a hobbyist beekeeper, and you've got five hives. How many bees in those hives? There's, in total, there's... And I know you haven't counted them all, but <laughs> yeah, as an estimate. It's probably about a quarter of a million, I suppose. quarter of a million yeah. bees. Yeah. What made you say, I'm now going to put... How, how, how long are the bees on, on the site, first of all, the hives? Well, only about five years, and that's just... That's because, I, I, again, I knew that was something that we could do to make, make Ireland a little bit greener. I mean, without bees, none of us would be here, basically. Yep. And uh, I knew nothing about bees, but I, I, I was able to go online and do a couple of courses. Uh, so where, did, a, where did you find those courses? Just... Just on, Googled on them? the internet, yeah, yeah. Googled them, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, I know we've we've engaged with a partner that does this, and it's like I wouldn't know where to start, and it's something that I'm really interested in, yeah. you know, uh, finding more out, uh, out about. So, 
and and John went and did two two courses, so he got his his okay. introductory beekeepers qualification, and then he got his advanced. Okay. And then he's a member of the Longford Beekeeping Be- yeah, Association they, they are as well. Marvelous, yeah. yeah. So they have all the tools then to build your first hive. Where do you get the bees from? And, and for our listeners that may not know, that may be thinking, you know what, I might put a beehive on my building, or I might. Where where do you start, or what? Well, what, I I would suggest that what the best thing that you can do is join your local beekeepers mm. club because there are local beekeepers in your area. Yeah, they know all the all the ins and outs of it, yeah. and, how, and they've Experts. all gone through that same process. You will you you'll have the opportunity to buy your first batch of bees from one of those members. And and I think it's important to mention um, when you're buying, it's. It's important to buy from a local Irish uh, beekeeper or a pre because Na- native Irish native bees. because yes. you don't want to bring diseases no, or no, pesticides no, in. No, no, and there, I mean there are a few diseases yeah. they yeah. can get. Yeah, yeah, and um, you know you learn so much from other beekeepers, and and you know if somebody's got a, an issue, they ask they ask everybody how what do we do? You know mm. how do we get around this? And there's always somebody that's had that issue. They'll be able to put up their hand and say, you know, this is what this is what I did, and it worked. It's almost a community of beekeepers that are helping each other. Is there much? Is there much in maintaining the hives that you have now? There's five hives. Is there much work in maintaining? Well, ideally, is that the right word? Maintaining. (laughs) It's right. Looking after, maybe. Yeah. 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 If if you can look at each hive sort of on a fortnightly basis and just keep a record of what you have to do, you know, and. uh, and what type of things would you have to do? Well, the bi- the biggest fear that everybody has, I think, being a beekeeper, is that your bees are going to swarm and you and you're not going to have any bees. Mm-hmm. But that is the that's what bees do. That's a natural process for bees. When they when their premises, just like like us, when our houses get too small, we want a bigger house. So they so that they they plan for it and about just over the queen will go and take just over half the population with her and leave a sort of a skeleton crew crew there. But what she's done is she's laid four or five queen cells and one of those queens will emerge, destroy the other queens and go off and mate. And hopefully the, that will be enough to, to carry on that hive. So that's the way... Bees do it naturally. So, so is that how bees is that how bees increase their population size? So they so they increase it. Yeah, okay, yeah, and spread. Yeah. Okay. And has has it ever happened to you that? Uh, it happened, you? <laughs> yeah, and, and it has just recently oh, too. No. Yeah, and um, but uh, you know I have got a skeleton crew in there. Mm. And, I mean, it's hopefully they will survive. The part of the beekeeper's job is to make sure that they have got enough food supplies. So you you know if you've got excess honey from another another beehive, you can put a couple of frames in to give them enough food, and, mm-hmm. and of course it's just to make sure they have enough food over the winter because the winters are so variable, and that's yeah. when a lot you you beekeepers lose a lot of hives. You know, I, th- I think it's about a fifty percent failure rate in beehives. Yeah. You know, and that's true. Professional beekeepers as well, like you know. So. And ta- ta- you, I think when I went to visit you, there was a swarm, or there was th- it's the start of a swarm. I know, Bride, you came down when we were after walk, and you said, "I think I seen a swarm up there." And it, when you find a swarm as a beekeeper, are you able to get that get the swarm and give them a new home, or and it, like persuade them to move into an empty hive, or is that? Yeah, that it's exactly what you do. If you're lucky enough to find a swarm, you can, you can. You know, you can catch that swarm. Lucky so enough to find a swarm, <laughs> isn't that like it's it's reverse thinking? Yeah. 
Well, if, if they're in a, say if they're in the lower branch of a tree, like, you know, you can put a blanket down on the ground underneath and go, go up, to, up to it and give, the, give that branch a terrific hard shake and they will all drop down on, the, on, on that blanket, right? And you can, you, can, you can move the contents of that blanket. You can, what, what you do is you put an empty box on the blanket, right? And if you, if you try and find the queen and if you can get the queen in the box... Right, this is, and this is really, really good. Not for the faint-hearted, is it? <laughs> it's actually okay because they're they're pretty docile when they do that, mm. and they're going to stay by their queen, right? That's how you, that helps you find the queen. Yeah. You can see see where the main cluster is. You can get the queen in the box. All those other bees will walk into the into that box, and it's a fantastic thing to watch. And that's how you know you've got the queen. Because if they don't want to go in the box, yeah. she's not there. She's still out on the blanket. Yeah. Wow. So that's how you catch your hive. And, and then, you know, you seal it up and you move it to where you want to reposition it. Yeah. So you, you've you got your five hives. And how much honey is that producing? How, many, how much honey would it produce on a... I know you're not doing it for the for yeah. purely for the honey, but... Yeah, I don't actually sell my honey. I give it to the family and friends. But um, the... Um, I think I'll get about a hundred pounds off those five hives. Hundred pounds I, of honey. Yeah, yeah, but I don't take I don't take as much as what some beekeepers would. I okay. To leave plenty of food for for, for the hive. Okay. And the secret is just making sure you leave enough space for the for the hive to keep growing. You know. Okay. So so the really the maintenance is really keeping an eye that they've enough living space to expand into and. Exactly. You know. So so would there be would there be some aspects where you would um. You would move. I'm trying to. I'm trying. It's a, it's a fascinating subject. I think we'd love to get you maybe back in maybe the next season where we'll just talk purely about beekeeping and you might have a think about that. We could do an online video maybe for our website, which mm. would be the steps. And we could actually. I'm. I'm. My mind. I get inspired listening to people like yourself, John and Bridie, where it's. You know, I think you've got so much knowledge that if we could document that knowledge and just put it on the internet, and somebody could come along and. They might find an interest enough to do it themselves that you inspire somebody either to do a native woodland or well, the, the, the beekeeping on the site. If you don't mind, I'll just share something with you about that. Of uh, course. In, in New Zealand, there was, there was a shop that used to sell everything to do with bees, you know, everything. Uh, and toys for kids, the lot. And uh, what they did is that they had half of, their sh- half of one wall of their shop was a glass panel and they had a hole in the wall, and they had the beehive inside, so people could actually go up and look inside the hive. Like you were living inside the hive nearly. Yeah, so you could see what was happening inside the hive. And if you, could, if you were able to do something like that and do one of your podcast, keep, keep it yep. on a podcast, people could actually just tune in at any time mm. and watch what was happening in the beehive. We, we've plans, and we're going to talk to the Irish Native Honeybee Society about bringing a live stream onto the internet with the technology we use in Cloudforce of inside the hive yeah, um, live at any time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're certainly going to do that with our bats. We've bats on Cloudforce 1 and we're, 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 we're only at the start of that journey of sort of what I always try and uh, nature needs a helping hand sometimes. Yeah. Um, and that's really what we're doing. We're going to create these miniature bat caves and we've got our hive. So it's about bringing that on as an educational resource Bridie, talk to me about your beliefs around climate change. Here's a, here's a little change in pace now. 
Right. You have seen, and here, here's a little pointer, maybe, to for why I'm asking the question. You've, you've, you're from Ireland. You lived in New Zealand for um, uh, how many years were you? Fifteen in? years. Fifteen years. I always read about New Zealand was at the forefront of what we would call climate action in terms of um, where they created. I think the first, if I'm. I'm, I'm, I stand to be corrected on this, but I believe the government created the first mechanism to allow farmers and foresters to trade their credits. In other words, if you planted a forest, the government would give you a, 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 a what I call a, a carbon credit, and you could use that and you could trade it. So it created an, an understanding of the environmental aspect of forestry. So you've lived in New Zealand for 15 years. You've lived in Ireland Talk to us about your beliefs on climate change and what you've seen over the last 20 years, right. 30 years. Yeah. I big, suppose... Big <laughs> yeah, it's a big one. Gosh. I, it, did yeah. I give that one? Did I give you that one to prepare? Um, um, answers next week in a yeah. postcard. Well, I suppose what I've seen in recent times and in the last probably seven or eight years is that, and we do go back to New Zealand regular, we've got family children, grandchildren there, John's twin sisters there and her family and, and, and friends. Um, and we see that it is wetter, um, at least for me, you know, uh, the last time we were there, which was earlier this year, it, it was just torrential downpour, downpours in the beginning of March. We would never have experienced that before in, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Um, and, and then the converse of that is that, you know, we see Ireland hitting heat waves now that we would never have experienced for you know decades or certainly in my lifetime anyway and that was growing up as a child in Malahide and going down the country uh, to see family and friends so so that, that there's some of the things we're seeing and um, now other people have different views about whether that's caused by climate change or is just, it just a, a natural. cyclical natural thing um, but but what we do know regardless of what we want to call it, is that there are changes that are detrimental and there are things that we can all do about it. So what can we do ourselves, just right down at that granular level, the tiniest level where we can all make a little bit of a difference? And that's, you know, and I do say this on my Facebook pages and on my, you know, to family and friends, just go and plant a tree. Just go and buy a tree, get a nice little container and... or rewild some of your garden, you know, have a patch that you let it go mad with if there's nettles or thistles, um, dandelions, which the bees love, um, uh, and just let the grass grow. Instead of cutting the grass and having absolutely beautiful and perfect lawns, um, maybe let it grow, you know, an extra week if you can. Let it grow as long as you are able to manage the lawnmower on it. Because that's what we were doing now. So we no longer have cattle on the other 25 acres of land. We let that grow. We grow grass. So for as long as we're growing grass, the grass is storing yeah. carbon in the ground. Yeah. Yeah. So we only cut that grass in the fields now twice a year. So by that, we're reducing you know, the amount of carbon we're spewing out by going and cutting it or having animals on it. Um, and then in the areas of our garden where we do cut the grass weekly we try you know bi-weekly we used to do it we're now down to once a week so but because we know that we have to keep Mm. keep it down otherwise the lawnmower will get choked up i think i think you've touched a lovely point there where 
you know, climate change is is happening. The science says it's happening. Um, whether that's because man has done that, um, some people believe he hasn't. Um, but, you know, we can trace back all the graphs to the start of the Industrial Revolution. And we're not here to have that argument today. I think <laughs> at Cloudforce, we believe climate change is happening and it is man-made. Um, but I love what you've just said about even if you don't believe that what is the harm in putting a few wildflowers in your garden, letting your grass grow, planting a tree. And I, certainly the inspiration for me when we started our cloud forest journey was I wanted to make it as easy as possible for people to plant trees. And, you know, while we brought in our cool partner community and they're, they're helping us create these wonderful forests along the Wild Atlantic Way, even with the launch of our gift tree uh, grove on, on Cloud Forest One. We have a thousand trees. We start next Friday uh, developing that grove and we've had orders in since last December with our partners. There'll be a thousand native trees. They're pollinator friendly. So we've got rowan um, going in. We've got gelder rose. We've got oak. We've got this lovely mix and it backs onto where we have our hives. Um, the big thing for me was that we've got people that I don't even know coming onto our website I think a lovely lady from Washington, D.C. last week bought two trees. We've had people from France buy trees. And what you've said is exactly that. People just doing little things. If you have, like we call it the Cool Tribe, and it's the Cool Tribe podcast, Mm. where we're trying to persuade as many people to do small things. And I'm looking at what you guys have done. You've done massive things. I just want to give you the... And that's why I wanted you in here today. You have done massive things. It'd be so easy to have, like you say, the, the lovely five-bedroom home in Dublin 4 or in Malahide. And, but you have really done uh, an incredible thing. What's your hopes? What, what, what are your hopes for the future for, for Kil, Kildeven? Kildeven? Kildeven. Kildeven yes. House. I'm, I'm getting it right. For yeah. Kildeven House. What are your hopes for the future for that? And I know we went down and it's such a spectacular... What, the job that you've done... It beggars belief. I just want to give you that kudos. What are your hopes for that um, over the next 5, 10, 15, 20? The future, you know, future. when somebody comes to live there yeah. uh, in 100 years' time maybe, what's your future hopes? Or? Well, I think that you know, we all know we're only here for a short time and that what we've tried to do is save the property and save the house and that's our contribution to our local environment our history um, our Irish history of which I am obviously very proud of and I know that John is equally proud of what he has done and in particular for him the planting of a forest to you know add to our local environment we've got two dairy farmers either side of us and, and other farmers around us and we're this little you know carbon neutral thing in the middle of all of that so we are very proud of that and we get great, a great sense of, I don't know, reward from that just internally that we have done that and we've achieved it. And it hasn't been easy, but we've kept at it together. Um, but I think for the future, in the same way that we saw its potential and we fell in love with, with what was the bare bones of a house and, you know, land that was you know, not well looked after, so to speak. Um, and, you know, we, we've tried to add to that. For us, I think 
the dream would be to find someone that would continue that on after we do that would that would have the same love for it uh, but you know may want to run a lovely eco-friendly business out of it or something like that but that wouldn't be tempted as we have been asked sell a piece of land it's so easy to sell land anyone will give you an arm and a leg yeah. for good quality especially land, in this country which is what we're sitting on you know it is it's it's, it's great land and um, that's why so many people were shocked particularly <laughs> my father when we decided we we're going to plant trees um you know but that's our vision and and it's to find somebody else with that vision and that can enjoy the benefits of it. Do, do, you, know, do you know what's interesting from my, from my time um, with, my, with previous forestry company I, I helped found, I found, I came into it very green and with my eyes sort of, I was sort of water running down from behind me years. I was so naive <laughs> that I didn't, I couldn't understand what our, my forestry colleagues were saying about it's like trying to persuade a farmer to plant trees. It's like, it's like you're taking the land off them. That it, A lot of the farmers going back 15, 20 years ago felt they were giving up by planting forests, that they were actually giving up that, you know, where they'd had their fathers and their fathers before them and their fathers before them and had cows or cattle or sheep on the farm that, that actually putting it under a, a forestation was effectively giving up their their heritage and I think a sea change happening over the next five to ten years where the government gets more in tune with with what I call agro I think they call it agri uh, forestry where you you let the farmer do his normal farming things and you give them a you know you, pl you let them plant part of their site without going through the onerous forest service approvals that you have to go through to take years uh, or, or months that it's exactly like what you say when You've good land there, but you've put a native woodland on, on the site. You've got your bees on the site. You've got our house restoration. And I know if there's anybody listening to the podcast, um, it's an inspiring place to visit because I, I see the potential there for like, it's nearly like an eco retreat because it's very unusual to be able to get to walk through um, what I call a native woodland that's at year 20 or 25. And you've got your bees on the site. So you've got all these touristic aspects and then you've those lovely um work cottages out the back that, that you've restored that are, could be for like artisan food and you're in that industry as well so yeah. i'll be interested i'll be w certainly looking with with uh, abated breath to what you the next plans for or how we can help you even with kildeven house final thing final thing um where you know where do you where do you start? And I, it's a final thing, and it's sort of like a question. Like, wh what's the one piece of advice you'd give to people that are listening to this before they start off on the journey that you have been on? Just the one little piece of advice. What's the one thing you've learned from? I suppose, what's the one thing you would have said to yourself the day you saw a leaving house and you walked on and you, you, you were thinking of buying it? What would you say to John and Bridget and... Back then. If you could go back in time, I think yeah. that's the question. <laughs> yeah, if you yeah, could yeah. go back in time and you could be there to use two guys and say, if there was one piece of advice you could give, what would that be? And that's a really tough question, I know. But I think for me, it's about if you have a dream. You know, I always say to people in my business, you know, what's your dream? Because people don't stop and think, 
what is my dream? What, where do I see myself? What do I see myself doing? And for me, and I think for John, we saw that it would also give us an opportunity to do the things that we wanted to do. So, and, and it was a change, you know, we were at a crossroads. So it was a big step for us. But I suppose if you can think about, is this journey or is this path going to take you to your dream? So our dream was that we needed to be reasonably independent. We wanted to be able to travel back and forth to New Zealand. Um, we wanted to be able to generate an income independently, if we could, if we decided to do that, from the land, from the property. And so that was, um, I, I suppose, the formation of that decision-making process. Not necessarily understanding it back then, but I think seeing that now. And, um, and yeah, I, I think that was, that, was my, that was for me, it was... What's my? Is this going to fit in with what I want to do, and with your where life, I see basically. my? Yes, yeah, it's going to. Add, yeah, is it going to fit in with our lives? Is it going to fit in with our values? Did we really know what our values were then? I think we did. We we were we did look around. We looked obviously at other properties and things, but we 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 came back to it very quickly because it was part of our dream. Okay. I think. And on that note. We'll just ask John the same question because he's not getting off. Trying to get away with that one. Yeah. What did you feel? What would you say to yourself going back? When did you buy it? Twenty-five years ago? Twenty-six years ago? Twenty-two. Twenty-two years ago. What would you say to yourself if you could go back twenty-two years in time? What would you whisper in John's ear? Well, I I think it's just a realization that uh, the the animals on our planet can't change the planet and protect it but we we can and we all have we all have a responsibility and a duty to do to do that and it is a numbers game so it doesn't matter how little piece of help you can give you the environment you live in if it's a numbers if we all do it it's going to make a tremendous difference one thing we all do know we have just the one planet so it's up to us that's simple to say. I am so delighted that both of you didn't say run. Don't <laughs> no. do it. Don't do it. I'm so delighted. Well, that is. Well, I have no regrets. I have no regrets. I'm very. We've been rewarded for what we've done. Uh, we we have. And John, what you've just said there in the last thirty seconds is very inspiring, and and what you've said is very inspiring as well, uh, Brian. Thanks so much for coming in. Yeah. Thank, thank you very much. It's our pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Cool Tribe Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, it would be great if you could subscribe and share it with your friends and family. If you would like to learn more about the Cool Tribe, Cloud Forest, or our mission, be sure to visit our website at www.cloudforest.ie.